the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy Friday, May 21st, 2021. This time of year brings a lot of things having to do with culture and politics. I actually think on the cultural front, some of the most important things are the messages adults communicate to high school and college seniors in their commencement ceremonies, as we've been discussing over the past few days. And I also think some of those messages are where the political and non-political get very confused, sometimes deliberately so. Too many who are political try to communicate life messages and advice in ways that are political or in ways where their political point of view confuses any any generally helpful non-political or life and commencement advice. And yet one of the reasons I think commencement addresses are so important is because I think our young adults need help today in ways they never before have. In truth, we all do, really. To that end, as many of you know, I do an annual on-air commencement speech, and here is 2021's. Graduates, here are some life lessons I hope you'll take, some from... Journalists, some from philosophers, some from political leaders, some from religious sources, some from scholars of other sorts, some from movies, some from lyricists, and some from just ordinary, wise people. And before I begin any of it, let me first wish you congratulations on your achievement. A lot of people wish they could be where you are right now. Well done. Enjoy. First and foremost, enjoy. There will be plenty of times in life where things are not happy or joyful. This is not one of them. Savor your moment. You've earned it. One, C.S. Lewis, it seems to me, needs to be read a lot more. In a year commemorating the most extraordinary of challenges from a virus and from political extremism and violence, for you in school, as much as for you not in school, as well as for us not in school, C.S. Lewis could have been our first intellectual vaccine if we took it when it first came out. On the issue of what I said above, just too much politics, too few politically free zones, too much making politics of almost everything. C.S. Lewis warned in 1945, quote, a sick society must think much about politics as a sick man must think much about his digestion. To ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice for one as for the other, but if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. I show you the times. In regarding the virus, C.S. Lewis confronted it in 1948. Except then it was the fear of atomic warfare. He wrote, quote, in one way we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we going to live in the atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why is you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and 
cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. Get a grip. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about death. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Once upon a time, we were told not to be afraid or be not afraid. Once upon a time, psychologists told us not to make decisions out of fear. Now, it seems to me, we all just really need more C.S. Lewis. Two, the best line I ever heard in a commencement speech was Ted Koppel's. He told a Stanford class, apply a strong standard of morality to your lives, and if periodically you fail, as you surely will, adjust your lives and not the standards. It leads me to lesson number three. I have never, ever met a perfect person. Indeed, to many, the only perfect person died about 2,000 years ago. Do not put people on pedestals. Do not engage in hero worship. People will disappoint you. This includes parents, teachers, friends, spouses, politicians, favorite authors, and religious leaders, the person you may even admire most. As Dennis Prager said... If you are not prepared to be disappointed in your friends, you are not prepared to have friends. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Don't forget it. People will disappoint. And that's life. Because number four, life can be hard from time to time. And the only person who makes no, error, makes no errors is the person who does not exist. The famous psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, wrote this, When a trout rising to a fly gets hooked and finds himself unable to swim about freely, he begins a fight which results in struggles and splashes and sometimes an escape in the same way the human struggles with the hooks that catch him. Sometimes he masters his difficulties and sometimes they are too much for him. The struggles are all that the world sees and it usually misunderstands them. It's hard for a free fish to understand what is happening to a hooked one, after all, until he is on the hook himself one day five so try to understand other people's struggles we will all have them that's a guarantee some we will see some we won't but i guarantee you everyone has struggles and failures too and often by the way those failures can lead to great success if you doubt this read the biographies of any great inventor or leader from thomas edison to steve jobs from abraham lincoln to margaret thatcher to ronald reagan Failure is temporary and will happen. And usually it is simply the world's way, life's way, of clearing a path to success you never dreamed of. 
which takes me to number six. Try and take it easy on yourself. Today you are flying high. Tomorrow you may also be, or you may not be. You may not have gotten the job you wanted, or you may have messed up the first task you were given in the new job you did get and wanted. It's okay. It happens to everyone. I promise. A failure is not is never the end of a story or your story, and in time I guarantee you, you will forget it, and so too will others, except they'll forget it faster than you. I promise. Seven. Don't worry too much about what others think of you. Worry about what you think of you. Ann Landers got something very right and important about this. If you worry too much about what others think or say about you, you will never move forward. You will be frozen, paralyzed. She put it this way, quote, pay no attention to disparaging remarks. Remember, the person who carried the message may not be the most accurate reporter in the world, and things become twisted in their retelling. Live so that nobody will believe them, close quote. That lost part bears repeating. If you are concerned about what others think of you, live and comport your life in a way that is a living, walking, breathing reproof of negative comments or disparaging remarks by others. Live so nobody believes them. It's more important to see a sermon, after all, than to hear one. Eight. Two things are very important. Patience and authenticity. On authenticity, a famous Hasidic rabbi once said, the only question we'll be asked when we die is not why we didn't become more like this person or why didn't we become more like that person. We will be asked, why didn't you become you? On patience, I can only relay something I've heard a lot of leaders and successful people tell me over and over again. The greatest decisions they ever made were not decisions they thought were that important at the time, in part because the greatest things that ever happened to them could not have been planned or sometimes even dreamed. I know this to be true in my life, too. So just remember, as the Talmud puts it, the only testing ground of the heroic is the mundane. You can pass the test of big things only after you pass the test of small ones. Treat every small thing, treat everything as big or at least as important as possible. I have a dear friend who puts it this way. Whenever you have to face someone or something uncomfortable, just ask yourself, what is my holy mission here? Just asking that changes almost everything. So be patient and be good. Life has a way of working out if your internal compass is pointed true north, and it happens when you least expect it. Ten, be forgiving to yourself and others. Remember the Lord's Prayer. We ask forgiveness from God a lot. And we hope for it. We depend on it. How much more should we be forgetting, forgiving of others? I know how much I appreciate, appreciate it when I'm forgiven for something. So the shoe should be on the other foot to be forgiving to others. Eleven, Francis of Assisi said a lot of beautiful things. Here's a sentence from him that is worth remembering. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted. Here's why. 12. The best way to get out of your head, to ease your mind, to solve your own troubles, is to help another with his or hers. When you are in what you perceive to be dire straits, try to help someone else. Try to comfort someone else. You'll find a magical solution to your own troubles that way. You truly will. Again, it is more important to comfort rather than be comforted. And it's a good thing to do anyway, 
as 13. The Dalai Lama may be the happiest, most joyful man on earth. Put it this way, our chief purpose in life is to help other people, and if you can't help them, at least don't hurt them. This from a man who's entitled to have a lot of resentments, watching his country be taken over and destroyed. And yet his philosophy in life is not about revenge, but about helping others, or at the very minimum, not hurting them. 14. Be decent at all times. If there's a question as to what to do in a certain situation, difficult or not, ask yourself, what's the decent thing to do? It's a great word, decent, and it's too often forgotten. But when you think about how to implement that word, how to act on it, it's a word that almost always tells you what to do and how to do it. It self-instructs. I know a few better self-defining words. 15, I don't remember where I heard this, but someone once said, when there's a difficult or maddening or tense situation where you think you should say something, put yourself through this three-part test. Ask yourself, does something need to be said? Does something need to be said now? And does it really need to be said by me? 16, another piece of advice for difficult or maddening situations. It's something Fred Rogers carried with him in his suit pocket. Quote, Calm is a language the blind can read and the deaf can hear, close quote. Be as calm as you can, as often as you can. 17, keep in mind this. People, especially young people, most often damage themselves with drugs or alcohol to change the way they feel, to feel normal, if you will, or to change their normal. Give them reasons not to need or perceive the need to change their normal. You do this by putting them at ease over whatever their situation is. We all have crosses to carry. Let them know theirs can be carried too, and it does not require a quick and damaging fix. That fix can be life-altering or life-ending. Trust me, I've seen a lot of this. The first shot is always a volitional choice. The second, and a finite, many more may not be, and too often there's never a second shot. 18, when in doubt about how to deal with a difficult person Try and find a way to love that person or at least see the child in them or some redeeming quality about them. Most people have something redeeming about them, something worthy of love. I love the line by Helen Keller, quote, It is wonderful how much time good people spend fighting the devil. If they would only expend the same amount of energy loving their fellow men, the devil would die in his own tracks from boredom. If that's hard to remember, just ask my friend's question, what is my holy assignment here? 20. I must read this old letter from a survivor of the World War II concentration camps that she gave to teachers every year at the beginning of a school year, courtesy of a reprint from child psychologist Heim Genot. Maybe it has resonance today, too. Quote, I am a survivor of a concentration camp. My eyes saw what no person should witness, gas chambers built by learned engineers, children poisoned by educated physicians, infants killed by trained nurses, women and babies shot by high school and college graduates. So I'm suspicious of education. My request is this, help your children become more human. Your efforts must never produce learned monsters, skilled psychopaths, or educated Eichmanns. Reading, writing, and arithmetic are important only if they serve to make our children more human. Of all the quotes I read in a given year, that one is the most requested for for repetition. I hope it means something to and for you just now. I know there's a lot of seriousness above that I just gave you, 
but let it not get in the way of your true education. Hunter S. Thompson gave you the roadmap, but only on this, quote, Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. The last thing I'll say is perhaps my favorite line ever. It's from the late education professor Leo Buscaglia, whose specialty was teaching those with special needs. It's something I've always loved, and I close with it. Only the weak are cruel. Gentleness can only be expected from the strong. One important note as I close, maybe something I've said today will resonate with you. Maybe not, but it's advice I love, and I fail each piece of it every day. To come back to where I started, people simply are not perfect. Now go forward with your new beginning, and remember, class is not over. You still have a holy assignment, a lot of them, in front of you. Go find them, and more importantly, make sure and recognize them when they find you, and get ready for a great ride. God bless. To the Seth Liebson show, Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted out, that the Middle East ceasefire is good news, quote, but it won't bring back the hundreds of innocent civilians killed or prevent future violence. The Biden administration must press, must press for a just lasting two-state agreement, and that starts with taking all appropriate steps to end the occupation. Close quote. Paul Mirangoff nails it. Warren has it backwards. It was Israel's decision to stop occupying Gaza that led to the deaths of innocent civilians there. If Israel still occupied Gaza, Hamas would find it impossible to launch large-scale rocket attacks at Israel, and Israel would find it much easier to respond to such attacks without itself having to launch rockets that, thanks in part to Hamas's strategy of hiding behind women and children, sometimes do kill innocent people. Israel's decision to leave Gaza was a mistake, in my view, but the mistake is irreversible as a practical matter. Israelis aren't going to reestablish a presence in Gaza, and who can blame them? But Israel shouldn't repeat its mistake and listen to end, uh, to, uh, by listening to Elizabeth Warren by ending the occupation of the West Bank. The Gaza experience confirms that. Were Israel to pull out of the West Bank, it would face the likelihood of rocket attacks and other incursions from that front, on top of the threat from Gaza and from the north. The Biden administration should ignore Senator Warren's advice and indulge its alleged desire to pivot away from the Middle East. It can do less harm elsewhere. I'm Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Open lines, anything you want to talk about, anything you want to ask me, perfectly fine. Just uh, not medical, legal, or accounting advice. I picked up a thread of conversation on um, my producer Bill's top 500 musical list. And we were discussing it with another colleague here who used to do uh, AM radio, um, AM rock radio, music back when AM did music. And we were talking about the list. It turns out 
the unbelievably shallow nature of this list of bills, whereby nine of the top 16 songs are Rush songs. We, we announced that yesterday. We've learned the crime continues. There are more Rush songs. There are more Rush songs. And then he has uh, – Bill, what, did you, do you want to tell the audience what this is for real quick? Oh, it's not for anything. I, I recommend it, though, that everybody out there create your own list of top 500, 100 songs, whatever you want to do. It's a pretty cool thing to be able to look at it. Is it? Is it? That's a cool thing? It is. Like in cool. what situation is it cool to look at your 500 list? Okay, maybe cool isn't the right word. No, maybe cool isn't the right word. <laughs> speaking of how we instruct and entertain, speaking of culture – you know, we've made this point about things getting so um, hard to deal with at such a rapid pace, uh, radical uh, or extreme story after radical or extreme story. And I, I don't mean just politics, but yes, in politics, uh, whether it has, uh, you know, to do with anything from foreign country involvements in our election to uh, what took place. Uh, last year on the streets to so many politicians and members of the military kowtowing to it, to opposition, um, to uh, uh, race-based thinking, to critical race theory uh, storming into our education system, to January – to the election, the election result, January – I mean there's just a lot and I haven't even mentioned the coronavirus, haven't even mentioned the Wuhan virus. Um and it's hard to keep track of everything that's going on. Schools open, closing, masks, vaccines, you name it. There's just a lot thrown at us to the point where this discussion, as I had pointed out earlier, Adam Carolla had made the point that next month when the Pentagon releases UFO documentation as uh, stories have been building towards the Pentagon Department doing that, we are, we are going to be unamazed it might be a one-day story, no matter how eye-opening or jaw-dropping it otherwise would have been. Who wrote the article this morning? Somewhere I read somehow, maybe Jim Garrity at National Review was talking about how um, belief in UFOs over the last like year, just year, belief in UFOs has um, – the word he used – it's not popularized. Belief in UFOs has um, become uh, moderated. It has become something more and more people believe in. It has become more and more conventionally wise to say you believe in UFOs as a result of some of these stories, some of the pictures, some of the things Barack Obama said, some of the things Donald Trump said, some of this early released video from the Pentagon. But it'll be a one-day story. It'll be a one-day story because something crazier will come along there's just an ever cascading flow of ever crazier stuff so new york city education department this isn't i don't know um this isn't uh, liberalville suburban volvo tesla driving education department this is New York City Education Department, okay? The New York City Education Department in cooperation with something that ought to make you nervous. What would, what would the end of that sentence 
make you nervous, almost anything in cooperation with at these points. You know it's not in cooperation with the Heritage Foundation or in cooperation with the Claremont Institute. New York City Department of Education, in cooperation with the Public Broadcasting Service, now we're scared, are facing criticism after inviting a drag queen book author to contribute to an education show aimed at young children. Quote, today I'm going to read from my own book, which is The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, 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 close quote, said the drag performer, who goes by the name Little Miss Hot Mess, during an episode of Let's Learn, a TV series produced by the New York City Department of Education and WNET, the PBS member television station for New York City. According to the New York City Department of Education's website, Let's Learn is geared toward an audience of children between the ages of, Bill, guess? Eight-year-olds, dude. That would be the maximum ceiling and extreme. According to New, this is in the Epic Times. According to the New York City Department of Education's website, Let's Learn is geared toward an audience of children between the ages of three to eight. Eight would be the absolute oldest to get the hips on the drag queen go swish, swish, swish. It is meant to feature, quote, lessons taped by educators and offers age-appropriate content that is aligned to education standards and lessons for early childhood education, focusing on foundational reading and writing skills, literacy, math, science, social studies, and the arts. The drag queen says, I wrote this book because I wanted everyone to get to experience the magic of drag and to get a little practice shaking their hips or shimming their shoulders to know how we can feel fabulous inside our own bodies, the performer said. At one point, the performer said to the audience, I think we might have some drag queens in training on our hands. Is there a point to having a drag queen display her Wears, if the notion is not to get some children to want to do that? Isn't that the point of that? There's more. I'm Seth Leapson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're our next caller, I'll give you two general admission tickets to our May 25th event, Crisis at the Border. It's going to be a great event over at the uh, Scottsdale Embassy Suites. More information at 960thepatriot.com. And if you're not lucky enough to be our next caller at 602-5080-960, we have a few tickets left at 960thepatriot.com. We're bringing in Mike Gallagher and Sebastian Gorka. Andy Biggs will be with us. I'll be there. And we're going to have a uh, uh, vigorous discussion about the tour to the border we'll have taken the day before and how the border plays into the larger progressive agenda. Love to see you there. Love to see your maskless faces, although we don't do any kind of shaming. So if you prefer a mask, you are more than welcome to wear one, of course. Of course you are. And no one will say a thing. Um, we uh, 
<laughs> there's so many t- there's so much talk it's interesting there's so much talk about um party shifting and elements of each party um kind of trading places it's Johnny Cash's old song the one on the left is the one on the right and you see this particularly in conservative journals when it comes to working class voters how that used to be the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, and it is fast becoming um, the heart and soul of the Republican Party. That That is a shift, a demographic, political, economic and demographic and social political shift to the Republican Party. You see it, too, um, with foreign policy, uh, which, which party is growing increasingly doubtful and increasingly skeptical of anything under a rubric of adventurism or nation building or uh, liberation. That used to be a little bit more in the Republican camp, a little more not so true of the Democrat. And that's changing. That's shifting, particularly when it comes to China. Uh, The Middle East is an interesting one because it used to be a fairly fairly bipartisan consensus fairly bipartisan consensus uh, that uh, the allies in the region um, started with uh, Israel and the enemies in the region, depending on the decade, the grievance, or the level of terrorism uh, going from the 80s to the more modern era, always Iran, but also Libya, um, uh, Syria, and uh, uh, Iran. The consensus, the bipartisan consensus on that was pretty um, pretty solid, pretty confirmed. And, of course, um, defense of Israel allowed for that luxury in many respects. What luxury? The luxury of knowing we had a solid ally on our side in that region that allowed us to, during the Cold War, surveil Russian technology and post-Cold War help win the war against terrorism because Israel's enemies were, surprise, surprise, our enemies. Victor Hansen does a wonderful job of analyzing why does the left seemingly hate Israel. Uh, He writes, why does the left seemingly hate Israel? And the truth is, I heard a guest on the Seb Gorka show earlier today talking about this. The truth is this has been coming It's been around for some time. The explosion of it has been coming for some time as well, and many have been warning about this. Many have been warning about the ugly underbelly of anti-Semitism on the left. Many have been warning about the ugly underbelly of anti-Semitism in various other grievance movements um, in this country. Uh, many have, for example, wondered why BLM and Antifa protests uh, too often have things to say anti-Semitic. What does that have to do with the issue? Why is the issue of Jews, why is the issue of Israel's survival part of the BLM movement? It's because it's part of the Marxist ecology. That's why. That's why every anti-Israel movement from the get-go, in fact, in poising. West and anti-Western uh, 
geographies and military positions and defensive positions during the Cold War had those exact spears pointed against each other. Israel was firmly on the side of the West. Soviets' uh, sphere was firmly on the side of, in fact, not only helping to create the PLO, but aggregating the Arab League, the non-aligned movement, and third world revolutionary movements, all proclaimed in the name of Marxism to be on the other side. So it's been there. What we haven't seen is apologetics on its behalf. What we haven't seen are defenses of it. What we haven't seen is the level of outbreak and rapid outbreak of it from speeches and semaphores and slanders and slurs to violence in the streets, to vigilantism against Jews. We haven't seen it much like it is in the last few weeks. An uptick of 40 to 50 percent, depending on the state, New York, California, Florida, Maine, Bar Harbor, Maine, Ball Harbor, sorry, Maine, for God's sakes. Um, uptick of 50 percent in the last two weeks of anti uh, uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, and Ball Harbor, Florida. Yes, make sure I get that right. I knew I was L-ing and R-ing in the wrong way. Um, uptick of 50% anti-Semitic violence in the last two weeks. Why would that be? Why would that be? Victor Hansen explains, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Hinderocker coming up in a few moments. And I want to get back into the story on uh, why the left hates Israel so much. But first, Wayne and Chandler. Hi, Wayne. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Let me encourage you for the trip you're making to the board. Um, the mainstream media announces, you know, that's yesterday's news. We're not interested. And they're hiding what's going on. And anyone with a heart and some compassion needs to understand that we have all kinds of problems attached to that. Uh, obviously, there's the health issues that people have come up who have a health problem and they're going to share it with others. There's the issues of how they're being treated and then released into our culture and society. And I'm conflicted about that because I've ministered in Mexico for 40 years. And those people don't want anything more than we want. We want to have a better life, and we want our kids to have a better life. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But when you have all this confusion, no one knows how to enforce the law or what law. And then we uh, devolve away from any standard, and uh, you get emotions involved, and you got people on both sides of the question that get heated over that. Wayne, as someone who has worked in that country, in Mexico, and has done work to help uh, protect and nurture children, um, is there a solution other than children coming into America? Can these countries do it? Well, uh, I think you fully understand this. Uh, uh, the work I do is to work through the church mm -hmm. and then try to help people uh, want to stay there. Uh, one of the best things we've ever done was what we then called NAFTA. we got a different name for it now, but if you offer jobs and opportunity in their country, a lot of them would prefer to stay there instead of 
leaving family and friends and, and all of the norms that they know and come here. Uh, but we're... Yeah, it's, it's an ironic it's an ironic double problem, isn't it, Wayne? In this sense, um, the people you describe, the hardworking, the ones that want to be hardworking, um, to the degree they escape to America illegally, you have an ongoing future problem for the countries they're leaving. You're effectively strip mining those countries of their natural resources, their best natural resources, human capital, human beings, quality human beings. Right? That's one problem. The other problem is our problem, which is when we aren't getting the quality human beings and we are getting the uh, sex traffickers and the drugs. Um, that is the other problem. It's a double problem. It hurts the countries there when we get the quality, hardworking ones, and it hurts this country here when we don't. Double argument. For a good border, I think. Don't go away, John Hinderocker coming right up.